Vince Young, former NFL quarterback and arguably one of the top players in college football history with an unforgettable championship at the University of Texas. Everybody like, where you been? Where you at, V? Why you not doing this? I'm like, because I choose not to. Recently retired from the game, Young admits his disappointment over the way his career ended. It, it clearly agitates you. It burns my inside out. But claims he's managed to move on. I don't want nothing to do with the NFL. Uh, I'm happy where I'm at right now. And although his money problems made headlines, the former Tennessee Titan says he's learned a lot. Somebody coming and trying to take your Rose Bowl rings, your trophies, your cars, your house. Young also shares the devastation of learning his friend and mentor, Steve McNair, was murdered. Because I didn't have nobody that I can trust because he understood me as a young man. And the challenging childhood that's pushing him to inspire young kids today. All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. I was told by somebody close to you that perfect world, long term, you'd love to be the Magic Johnson of Texas. Hey, man. <laughs> or the Joe Jamel of Texas. And that's the man here. <laughs> so, you know, I would love to do that. I mean, I have a lot of respect for Magic Johnson and things that he does, um, you know, you know, what he did definitely on the court, but what he does off the field is um, tremendous. And um, just the team that he has around him now, um, that he built around him, for them to believe in what he believes in, um, that's why it's, that, that's a success. And I'm just happy to have a team now um, that already love me for who I am, but they also believe what I'm doing and what I do on an everyday basis. What's been the biggest adjustment for you um, going from playing to entering the kind of corporate world? <laughs> well, you know, the, the biggest thing is not playing for one. <laughs> um, knowing, you know, I'm still young and I know I can play ball and uh, the game, how fun it is. Uh, Sunday is the purpose, you know, the, you know, Mondays, you know, through, through Saturday getting ready to play. Uh, and then it's something you've been playing since you was a kid, you know, playing Little League football, playing Madden football. Um, and then, you know, have opportunity to play in the NFL. It was truly a blessing. And, you know, not able to play right now, it's, it's, it, it was definitely tough to make a decision um, to kind of move, you know, move forward on some things in life. And, you know, it all, you know, it's all turned out pretty good. But at the same time, I love the game of football. So um, I'm still active with it and doing things for our next generation to make sure they understand how um, how big, how fun, and how football is an opportunity. What was that, or what did that decision-making process for you entail, you know, deciding to no longer continue playing? Well, I decided on a lot. First of all, you know, my, you know, prayer. You know, definitely you want to pray about making sure you're making the right decision. And then, you know how it is, and, you know, with my wife, speaking with her and, um, you know, mentors and things like that and family members that my mom and, and family and talking to my agent, you know, are you sure? I was like, I'm not really sure, but I am sure. And then, you know, also, you know, having a game plan. Um, that was one of the biggest things that I feel like uh, a lot of my mentors helped me with um, to understand what are you going to do when you make this decision. And it made the transition a little bit more easier for me after I made the decision to, to retire. And you mentioned your mentors. Um, a after you stopped playing football, I understand you come back to Austin. And it was important for you, I, I think, to get 
kind of a new team of advisors around you almost. Um, what did that entail? Well, I mean, and I wouldn't say more so new. Um, they was always there. This is that I was so blinded from the team that I had. Um, you know, I thought that they was taking care of their responsibilities, but they wasn't. Um, so I was so blinded of being the best athlete, and I was hoping that my team I can trust was doing what they were supposed to do off the field, which they wasn't. So, um, but the mentors like Judy, Don Reese, um, Jim McAvell, um, you know, Coach Browns, um, Joe Jamel, and my partners here at the Steakhouse and Sean Aboud, you know, they always been there. Uh, it's just that I was uh, to the point that I needed to use them. Um, and they didn't, you know, want anything from Vince. They just liked who Vince was as a person and want to see the best for Vince and hit me and my family. So, um, you know, I had to, you know, when, when I was all said and done, I was back on campus. When you do stuff like go back where it all started at your roots, um, that's when I was, you know, got back involved with my people. Didn't ever lose sight of my people. I was always talking to them, keeping in touch. But in the same time, like when you get to the point when you're playing ball, you're so focused on playing football and you feel like your team taking care of those responsibilities and they not. And that's why I was happy that my mentors stayed, stood with me and understood what was going on. And, you know, thank God that they mentored me like, hey, Vince, you know, you need to go back and check on a lot of stuff. You need to come over here and talk to me and sit down with me. And they were still there for me. And I really do appreciate them for, you know, not turning their back on me and, um, and keeping that same love that they have for not the athlete events, but the person, uh, VY. So uh, I really do appreciate that. What are your long-term business goals? Well, my long-term business goal is, for one, is what I have fun, fun at is giving back to the community. I really feel like that's alone for me staying visible with people. Um, it's gonna um, carry me for a long time because of the fact once I continue to start my brands and business, um, you know, by me meeting and greeting and talking to people as I'm doing what they ask me to do, now I have to get, and now I can tell them what I'm doing that gets them excited like, wow, I didn't know you was doing that. Um, so that's what it's all about. And most people think like, Vince, are you tired of doing all these events? And like, actually I'm not because I'm actually marketing my brand as well. Just as much as I'm marketing what's going on about education and you know, the, what I'm very passionate about. And then when we step off to the side or if I email you later on in the day and say, hey, I was pleased to meet you. Uh, I also want to send you some information about what I'm doing as a as a brand as as VY you know the different businesses I have going on and they either can be on board with it or not but out of those six or seven cars that I did receive at those events um, probably two or three of those guys will definitely give you a call back with some interest and I feel like that as long term for me um, is going to continue to get bigger and bigger as I get older and more mature about the business I feel like that's going to grow so much because of the type of person I am for one and then once you get involved with my team and see the new, um, the new VY, the new brand, uh, you know, we're we making sure everything is right, um, I think that perception will change about the old perception that I had. So I want to take you back to when you were growing up. Uh, you're seven years old, out riding your bike, and you get hit by a car. Cruising. What happened? Well, just not paying attention, riding my bike, having fun, and, you know, came around the corner and wasn't looking both ways and 
car smashed me, took a toll on me, knocked me out for a minute, disrupted something in my tummy. <laughs> you know, thank God I'm still alive. Um, that was a moment to, uh, for me as a kid, and as I remember about it to this day, um, you know, that I definitely have a blessing and an angel behind me. Take it from the moment you woke up after being knocked out. I woke up in the bed at the hospital and my mom was there and family was there. And, uh, you know, just a bunch of people, everybody in very, you know, concern, major concern, um, you know, for, you know, a seven-year-old young man getting hit by a car. I mean, you know, just to see my family there, you know, that's a man to that because of me uh, being a baby boy. You know, I probably scared everybody, my mom and everyone. But um, just to open my eyes, the first thing you see was your, you know, your family there in support. It almost seems like you're downplaying it, though. I mean, how severe were the injuries? Uh, I mean, it was life-threatening. I was in the hospital for some months. Uh, I think two or three months, if I, if I remember. I don't know how I can remember, but I think I was in the hospital for two or three months. Um, you know, you know, the, you know, just a lot of stuff going on, surgery, you know, a lot of IVs, just a, a young man that almost lost his life, you know. Um, so, you know, I have an opportunity to still be here today and do the things that I did for 32 years. Um, again, it's a, a definitely a blessing. How, how scared were you? Very scared. I was very scared. Uh, like, I, again, I, you know, I thought my life was over, for one. You, you really did? Yes. Uh, well, I remember, I think I remember being on the avalanche, keep blanking out, and the, the, the guy was making sure that I stay up. I guess when you really close your eyes, it's over, over with. How would you describe where you grew up? Uh, it was predominantly Hispanic and black. Um, a lot of just poor, the poor kind of not too poor, but mostly poor. A lot of us didn't have a lot in that, that area, so it was, you can tell a lot of negativity, drugs, and you know, a lot of liquor, a lot of stealing, fights, stuff like that was going on that you can definitely get distracted by as a, you know, as a young man. How often would the lights and the water at your house be <laughs> off? All the time. <laughs> Once we eat and figured out how to get whatever one, whatever one is off, get back on, then the next one goes back, goes off. And why on. is that? It's just didn't have no money. Just didn't have a lot of money. I mean, you only had my grandmother working and my mom was more so part-time and no telling what she was doing with her money at the time. Um, so it was a, a struggle as a young man and me and my two older sisters. Um, how did you deal with that? We just had to deal with it. I mean, when the water go off, you know, we have our lights on and you had to, you know, get those local bottles that people use in their office. You know, I had to go fill it up on the side of a friend house and bring water to back to the house so we can use it for, the women can use it for bathing or we can use it for cooking, you know, whatever it may be. And then when the water, uh, electricity go off, then our water's back on so we can be able to take baths and cook in the dark but not have, you know, electricity and, you know, it was, it was tough, but we managed, we managed to pull through it as a family. <laughs> air conditioning? Yeah, I mean, you know, when the air, air, electricity go off, you don't have nothing, so, 
You know, you just basically open the windows and open the front door um, and kind of, you know, me, I used to sleep with my pillow and cover in front of the doorway just to protect the women in the house. Oh, you did? I had to. I was the young man of the house. I had to protect the women, you know, making sure nobody walk up in there. Leave. I know I wasn't going to be able to do nothing, but they probably could have took advantage of it. But us knowing the type of neighborhood we was in, uh, wasn't nobody really going to bother us. Um, but they knew what the situation was going on in the household. How concerned were you that something could happen? I was always concerned because of the fact, you know, just a child growing up. I mean, it was so many people coming by our house all the time. Um, because once my grandmother left from work at 11 o'clock at night, um, the whole neighborhood used to come to our house. If it was my friends or my mother's friends, and you know, they used to close the door for the back room for the kids and all the grown-ups in the front. And just what, what was going on in their side was really crazy, you know, for a young man. And, you know, for me as a young child and my, me and my sisters, we was like, wow, what was the stuff that was going on? What did you say? A lot. A lot from partying to drinking, sex, everything, drugs, all kind of stuff was going on uh, on that side of, the, uh, side of the house. And were, were they aware? you guys could see what was going on? No, not at all. Not me, you know, me being a boy, a young boy, you're gonna do, you're gonna be right. bad. You wanna, you know, wanna see what's going on. And right. they used to try to block little holes in the walls that we had. But I used to just punch that out and just sit there and look at them. Right. You know, and um, sometimes I used to be thirsty. I used to walk through there and go get me something to drink. And, you know, just everybody saying hello, little vent. Uh, just knowing that they are strong out on drugs, you can smell it. What would your mom say if she saw you? Well, she didn't see me. Oh, she didn't, okay. <laughs> she was most likely probably in the backyard or probably walking around mingling. Who knows what she was up to, but uh, most times she didn't see me. So, um, you know, moms, you know, when you when you on that level on drugs, you never know what's going on, what you see. So. Um, you know, as she admits to this day, as she got, as she's been clean for some so many years, just to hear her testimony and, and her shocking after I told her <laughs> that I was doing those things, she was very shocked. What do you remember from the time you were arrested as a kid? Oh man, just getting in trouble that day in middle school. You know, um, you know, going off for of spring break, and it was a big fight, crazy fight with blacks and Hispanics. That's always used to happen in my middle school. And, um, you know, me being a leader, they definitely gonna put me in handcuffs, picking me out the bunch. Um, you know, took me in the back, was, you know, letting me know they was about to call my parents and my mom or whatever, and I'm waiting there like, oh man, I'm about to get a whooping, I'm about to be punished. That's all I was thinking about, because my mom hated when I got in trouble at school, so, and when she comes up there, she's about to embarrass me in front of everybody. <laughs> So, you know, as I took that in and got in the car, she's screaming and hollering at me. And, you know, the most thing she was saying that I got out of as she was screaming was, um, you're going to end up be dead, crippled, or in jail. Um, so that was basically what I was seeing around me was um, peers getting shot and killed, um, guys getting crippled or smoking something that's been laced or something, and then they have a kind of reaction. And then a lot of my friends was already in and out, out of prison, all kinds of stuff. So that's what I was basically seeing in my community. And, um, and that kind of hit home with me because of the fact I didn't want to uh, fall into that bunch.
um, be that stat. And not only did that, my whole, my family didn't want me to be in, in that as well. How much did it resonate with you when your mom was, you know, yelling at you then? Yeah, it, a lot. I mean, that was out of that all the screaming and backhanding me. <laughs> Where I got out of that is, first of all, how much she loved me as, you know, as son. But, um, you know, she wanted to the best out of me as, as a boy. She didn't want me to fall into what she was doing as a parent, and then what was going on around us uh, in our neighborhood already. Why would you used to climb out of your bedroom window and sit in a tree? Because when I used to do that, there used to be a lot of arguments in the household. Uh, with my uncle and my mom, or somebody fighting or screaming and hollering, something going on that um, wasn't going somebody's way. <laughs> I guess that's what you want to call Or somebody stole something. My uncle probably stole something. Um, something was going on in the household. And for me not to, you to hear that mess, when you get tired of hearing it, um, you want to go to a quiet place and just kind of think. So I used to sneak out my window and climb in a tree and kind of just get away from it. What would you think about? How can I help? Um, you know, why? Why is this? Why is our family? You know, you always have that why. Why is our family fighting all the time, all the time? It was because we was broke. And when somebody stole or somebody do something wrong or they probably strung out on drugs or drunk, it always goes back to, you know, not having income. I was talking to your wife, Candace, and she told me you told her about how you know, the, you were really close to joining the gangs at one point. They were, you know, recruiting you when you were younger and you strongly considered it. Why ultimately decide against it? You know, you know, when you understand and when you're messing with gangs, you know, me, I, it wasn't me for one. I was only doing it because I was peer pressured and doing it. So that's be the main thing why most kids do that. Um, but at me, at the time, I was my friends, guys I hung out with. So they was doing it like, okay, I can do it. Um, you know, my thing is I didn't really um, like the point of hurting people or stealing from people, and that's what was going on. So I kind of made a decision like not to go that route, and my route was more so a leader or playing sports. That was more so the things that I liked it to do. And, you know, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about business. It's not I have to go do what everybody else want me to do in business. Now I can go do what I like to do in business. And it was kind of the same thing when I was younger. How did him not being around almost, uh, you know, how did that almost unknowingly impact how you wanted to be a father when you had kids? Yeah, I mean, him not being around, I still made a mistake. Uh, you know, I, I, before me and my wife got married, I still had two girls before I got married. So, um, you know, I tried my hardest not to, but you know, the distractions and you being who you are, sometimes get the toll of you sometimes, but you're not saying I don't wish my two daughters here or I don't love their mothers. But at the same time, I wish I wouldn't have done that because, you know, I tell kids now when I speak to them, they always ask that question. You know, one, one of the biggest things you regret, I was like, uh, man, you know, having, having kids even before, out of wedlock, you know, and, um, you know, I had my two girls, and me, I'm, I'm a, people, a kid, I love kids, and you, so you already know how I feel about my own kids. I love my own kids, and not able to see my daughters how I want to, like I see my son, Jordan, a lot, 
uh, it's, a, it's a toll on me as well. So I had to try my hardest to fight, you know, do a lot extra to, to be at my daughter's, you know, dance recitals or her gymnastics. You know, I have to do extra, but I would love for my kid to be with me every day. For a long time, you did not ever want to talk about your father. In recent <laughs> years, uh, you started opening up, you know, more about him. Um, how did you find out when you were a kid that he was going to prison? How did I find out? Uh, well, I found out on TV or the radio station, one of the two, that um, he was stealing from U of H. He was a janitor, mm -hmm. so I think he had an account with um, the U of H to clean up the schools, because that's, that's what his job was, was um, you know going around cleaning up different buildings and stuff like that. How much of your childhood was he incarcerated? Uh, well, the early stages he was there, but he wasn't there. He was beating on my mom, hitting my mom, so he wasn't there most of the time. And then, you know, the only time I remember being with him in my childhood was when I went with him and he put me to work, to work in the building and he gave me a radio. That was probably the only time I remember. I think that was my sophomore year in high school, junior year in high school. But most of my childhood, you know, I, doesn't, I don't really remember too much of him being around other than, you know, hitting on my mom or beating her or something like that. What was the most difficult part of not having him around growing up? Well, not having my pops around, I mean, it was very difficult because of the fact um, I, like I said, I'm a family man, and you know, you know, you grow up watching the Bill Cosby shows. You, you you watch up growing up watching, you know, these shows, and they all they all have their father figure around from Will Smith, you know, all these shows. And um, I just saw it when the message, the the time when they had those big messages on those shows, is you know, the dad, you know, did a lot for that young man on TV, of helping him grow and understanding how to become a man, and I didn't have that. For how long did you avoid talking to your father, and what ultimately made you decide to reconnect? I wouldn't say I wasn't talking to him. He wasn't talking to me. Okay. <laughs> so, um, it, it seemed like in some of the uh, profiles that I read about you, at least when you were in college, made it sound like you really di didn't want to make the connection, but the women in your life, your mom, your sisters, wanted you right. to at, at some point. Yeah, everybody pushing, you know how it goes, everybody pushing you, like just marriage, like everybody was pushing me to get married. I was like, I'm not finna do when everybody else want me to do. I'm gonna do it when I'm ready. And it was the same thing when, you know, my father, I'm gonna talk to him when I want to, not when he wants me to or you want me to. It's just that I'm not ready for that right now. I have so much over my plate right now. I'm not ready to do that right, right now. So it wasn't that I didn't want to talk to him. It was just I was busy doing, taking care of responsibilities that he should have been helping me with. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I was so focused on making sure my family is, is squared away, is, is good. You know, to this day, we talk sometimes, but, you know, but in the same time, I'm like, you just let me know when you're ready to talk. And I, I haven't heard that conversation yet in the conversation when I do see him, he still hasn't said that yet. He said what? When he's ready to talk to me about why you wasn't here. Because it is a lot of question marks in my mind because as I'm a dad now, um, I, have, I see that it, it's no reason for what, you know, um, the things that you did until you explain to me because I'm doing it now as a father, even with my daughters living in 
um, another, another city. I'm still consistently talking to them on the phone, making sure they hear daddy's voice, see daddy, all of the above, spending time. And, you know, to me, all I wanted and my sisters wanted was that, a dad around just being invisible. Even whatever beef you had with my mom, but what about us right. kids? And I just want him to explain that part of it. Why'd you have to carry around your birth certificate growing up? Because <laughs> I was a skinny, bucked, 35 pound, looking like a grown man. <laughs> but I was actually the youngest kid <laughs> in the bunch. You so were the youngest, but people thought you were the, the oldest. oldest. So my mom had to carry my birth certificate everywhere because of parents and people. We out there kicking butt and everybody like, he's, he's not supposed to be on the freshman team, he's supposed to be on the junior team. I'm like, I'm the youngest one out here. And once they saw that, they were like, oh, he's just that good. <laughs> so we had to bring our birth, my birth certificate everywhere just because of that argument always happened. <laughs> Why did your high school coach make you take speech and drama classes? <laughs> With Coach Seals, him being a funny guy and, you know, my guy, he just had a lot of faith in me. He saw the potential that I had and he saw the leadership that I had with, you know, my team and peers on campus uh, on high school, on, at the high school. So he was like, hey Vince, I think you need to take speech classes because you might be successful and you need to know how to talk on TV. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I know how to talk on TV. Like, nah, <laughs> you need to get better. So uh, I ended up taking a speech class and sharpening it up. Just speaking to your playing uh, early on, you didn't go to these quarterback camps like a lot of players coming up today. I did a couple. I, oh, you did? Okay. Well, I did the uh, Elite 11. Um, I did a lot of like smaller quarterback camps. I didn't have the money to go to these big quarterback camps that they had. So uh, I used to have people that played the game, a quarterback, and go work out with them uh, pretty much two weeks of just football, 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 throwing and, and, and stuff like that. I didn't have the opportunity to do those things, but you know, I wish I would have had opportunity to do it. How do you think that affected your style of play? <sighs> That's a tough question. Well, you know me, I'm, I'm very, what they call arrogant, I guess. I'm actually very cocky and confident. Um, you think you're cocky and arrogant or just confident? Well, some people feel like I'm arrogant, so. What do you think? I'm just confident in myself, very confident in myself. So I feel like um, I didn't need that because I was doing the stuff behind the scenes, like playing a lot of um, football um, behind the scenes when I shouldn't been playing. Like, Vince, ain't you the starting quarterback for James Madison High School? Why are you in the back of the neighborhood back here playing football with the rest of the guys? I'm like, well, basically, I'm just having fun with my guys. I ain't thinking I'm going to get hurt. I can get hurt on the football field, too. So I used to take those times to get better. I used to take time like 707. I used to just do that a lot, like twice a day sometimes, to, to my arm is hurting. So that's what I used to do is, you know, not more so do with the, I guess the, the protocol of becoming a, a, a great quarterback. I used to be one of the guys that go behind the scenes and kind of work on my own without media coverage. And, you know, I just like, I like one of, you know, working. When you go work, you like to be by yourself and kind of study yourself and listen to who you have, especially somebody you really got that chemistry with. 
and I used to have the coaches that I used to work out with, like basketball, football, baseball, and track, I used to have that type of chemistry that I used to listen to them so much because the they the guys that came before me was very successful too. So I thought I can be very successful too if I just listen and, and pay attention to what's, what's being said. So that's kind of as I got older, you know, when I got the Texas and the pros, they always wanted me to go do these quarterback clinics, but I didn't want to go do that. What would you say is the most satisfying moment from your football career? Uh, beating the Texans, 4-0. I'm 4-0 against the Texans. <laughs> really? Yes, and the Giants. Okay. <laughs> but the Texans, for one, because they didn't bring me home, and I wanted to come home badly to play in front of people that love just vents. How would you describe what your last year at Texas was like? Wow. I mean, it was it was huge. It was huge. And, you know, at Texas, I didn't... Um, you know, it was it was big in a way, but in the same time, they uh, again, this is this is the South, so it's more like, man, we proud of you more so. Oh my God, it's Vince. I mean, sometimes that happened, but um, it was more so. We very proud of you, and um, you know, continue to keep up the good work, and you set the tone for. Um, for us to win that championship game because we haven't won one in I think 32 years or something like that, and it was it was it was just huge. And me, again, I'm so humble. <laughs> you know, I, I'm always you know recognizing my my coaches, um, my teammates, um, and then our, our fans and the fans. I mean, I kind of kind of keep it right there. Right, right now, when people call me a legend, I'm like, what? I'm not a legend. I'm just a regular old human being like you, trying to be successful. So it's the national championship game. Uh, There's six minutes left in the fourth quarter. Texas is up 23-17. There's a break. And you go and shake hands of USC alumni during the break. What are you thinking? Just respect. <laughs> I mean, how, like, in that moment, when there's that little time left, national championships <laughs> on the line, are you comfortable enough to just... Well, I mean, I'm a great listener, so um, when they was, uh, you know, acknowledging who they were and, um, you know, you know, I was like, wow, you know, I, I think it's like a great time to, <laughs> you know, pay your respects and and, uh, you know, say hello, and I, that's what I did at the time. <laughs> set, set the scene for that final drive and what you remember. Oh, man. The last drive was, you know, nervous for one. Um, guys looking in your eyes, like, is Vince ready or is he not ready? Um, so, you know, when I stepped into the huddle, I just basically told the guys this, hey, Let's go take care of our business. Don't try to do nothing special. You know, one of my biggest things is, is I say, uh, let your things hang. <laughs> I'm not supposed to say it on TV. You can but... say it, we can beep it. So let's hear it, let's hear it. <laughs> let your kahunas hang. That's what I told the guys. And let's go play ball, let's go win this ball game. And, you know, I think that kind of kept the guys loose to laugh and, and, and kind of, you know, be funny and let them know that, like, this is a serious moment, but it's not really a serious moment. We've been in this moment before. Let's go, let's go win this ball game. And 
Um, I think that's what the guys did. How nervous were you? I was very nervous. Um, you know, I, I thought I was going to drop the snap a couple of times. Did you? Yes, because that tend to happen sometimes when I get too nervous. I, I've done it a lot, plenty of times, a couple of seasons before. Uh, but I was definitely nervous uh, that whole drive because I didn't want to make a mistake. When you found out that he was murdered, yeah, what was your reaction? Oh man, I broke down, broke down, crying, sad, shocked. I couldn't believe it. I mean, because I had just saw him the Thursday night before at the we was getting done with minicamp OTAs, and we was hanging out at his restaurant, um, eating and hanging out, talking and. And I left because I had a football camp here in Austin. And then I ended up going to Cancun that evening. And as soon as I land, that was the first <laughs> call I got. I was like, my friend, assistant of mine, Mike Moo, was like, Pop gone. I was like, gone where? Are you going fishing again? He's like, no, he's dead. I was like, no, you lying. So I didn't have no way of like going and work on TV until I got on the internet and read it. And I was like, that's when it kind of hit me. I was wasn't the same that whole weekend. I had to, you know, take a flight back home because I was that down of hearing, um, you know, my pops gone. It was like my dad. It was, you know, was killed. How did it affect you? It affected me a lot. Affected me for a while because I didn't have nobody that I can trust to and call and talk to, like the type of bond that me and him had because he understood me as a young man and knew everything I was going through that he has went through um, when he was growing up. And it kind of hit me a lot when I heard that information that he was gone. How did you get over it? <sighs> I haven't got over it. <laughs> um, it's, you know, right now to the point that I'm just trying to make him proud as he looked down on me. Uh, continue to remember the things that he did teach me, the things what he would say if I was making a decision of something. Um, you know, so I haven't really got over it yet. It still breaks me down every time I talk about him, I think about him and his kids, his, his family, his talking to Mama Mac, his mother, keeping in touch with them. Um, it always hit me, you know, always, because he's not supposed to be gone for, for one and um, just the type of person he was. He cared about everybody. How did the two of you develop a relationship? Uh, a, a close friend of mine, uh, well, I call him my uncle, uh, Ivory Young, um, was good friends with Steve McNair, and they went to Alcorn together. And um, uh, Steve was like, uh, bring him to the football. Well, so my uncle was, you know, raving like, man, you need to meet this young boy named Vince, and he's doing really good. And he was like, okay, bring him down to my football camp. So. We drove down to his camp in Mississippi and kind of me and my boys, we went out there and kind of towed the camp up at, you know, going against Texas against Mississippi boys and could have, kind of had a pretty good camp. And, uh, you know, Steve was very proud of me. And uh, he was like, you know, he told my uncle to make sure if he needs anything to, you know, uh, any questions, you know, to continue to, to keep his success and opportunity going, just tell him I'm a phone call away, and um, and he meant that. And, and when I did call, he was always answering. If he did answer, he'd call right back. Hey, hey, son, you all right? You need anything? I was like, yeah, I just want to talk to you about the situation. And he was just there for me, and he was really there for me. What role 
would you say he played in your life? He was a father figure at the time, still is. Um, um, just not having a father figure in my life and knowing that me and him went through the same thing and have his father in his life and the similarities that we had of becoming um, um, a quarterback, being a black quarterback at that, it was tough on his, his end as well and he opened up a lot of doors for myself and just, just the mentor part of it. I mean, he was a, 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 a definitely a father figure for me. How close did the two of you become? We came really close. You know, as the years went on, so, um, he used to come to my high school games and see me. He came to my college games before and hanging out with me. And you know, I thought it was, uh, at, at, you know, uh, you know that what I was saying about not having my father in the locker rooms and being visible. He did that for me. Um, you know, when my dad was locked up and we started to bond to build that relationship, he was there for me a lot. That I. I need it for not just my coaches to be there for me because they can do so much. I needed somebody I can call anytime and can come see me at any time. And um, he did a lot of that. And I'm you know, greatly appreciative of it too as well. Of all the publicized incidents, you know, whether on the field or off, what, if anything, looking back, would you do differently? Keep my mouth closed for one and just play football. I mean, that's the main thing I do, which I had no problem with. But me, I, I, I used to like, when somebody messes with your brand or something, you, you have to go to war with that. And I think I shouldn't have done that because of um, the, the brand of the NFL, the brand or the organization or the coach, the head coach. You don't want to fight that battle or media. You don't want to fight that battle. So. I wish I would have just shut up and just played football. What do you think led to your career ending in Tennessee? Uh, I know definitely because of the fact I got into it with my, my boss, my coach, and it kind of spread it through the NFL that I was this guy that don't work hard, I'm not a good guy. I mean, it was just all kind of stuff. So, And it was kind of hard to fight because once you have a guy that's on the board, He's on the board of the NFL. He's recognized by a lot of people. It's kind of hard to fight that battle, and, and then nobody want to go to battle with me. I would love to go to war with him to let to prove the type of person I am that I am a hard worker. What do you think led Coach Fisher to developing the opinion of you that he had? Well, uh, I, I guess honestly, like I said, I got into it with him, and um, you know, I, I, I didn't see any uh, players. About what? Well, when I got went on the last game of the season, I mean, we in Washington, we just had a, a, a you know, just had a, just had a, a conflict with each other. Um, I wanted to go back in, he didn't want to let me back in, and I got really upset with the situation. Me and him had situations through my career in Tennessee, and I don't know what it was about. And I used just to hate when me and him sit in a meeting room like me and you sitting, and we'll talk about some things, and then. As soon as practice over, the whole media knows what we talked about. So I was like, so you throwing me underneath the bus. As soon as I go out here to talk to the media, they know everything we talked about. And I thought that was But do you think he was factor. doing it to throw you under the bus? Or that was just, well, he was just open with I have media no idea. Like to me, uh, you don't see that with any other quarterback across the lead or any player and coach across the lane. Must goes on in-house, stays in-house. And I was just getting fed up of 
again, fighting um, a battle that you can't win with the media. And I just felt like my people was feeding them stuff that information should have gotten, shouldn't got out there. So um, to the point of my, what I'm saying is I got tired of fighting that battle. And um, I wanted out of Tennessee because of him. I didn't, couldn't get along with him. It took the fun out of the game. It took the fun out of me and my players. Um, and, and, you know, and I really felt like that point of me and Fisher still hurting that organization to this day because they still haven't been winning. <laughs> he had been quoted before, or he's been quoted before as saying he felt like there were always things that were more important to you than football. Uh, Michael Griffin, who played with you both at Texas and then, uh, you know, with the Titans, made similar um, comments. How true, if at all, do you think that was? I mean, again, everybody have their opinion. Um, that organization, Coach Fisher, Mike Griffin, whoever have something to say about me, they know how much hard work I put in and how much I did for our organization and the team. And it's been like that since I was a kid. Ain't nothing changed right. that, that I felt something off the field was more and, no, and there never was. If they go back and if they want to go back and watch film on Vince, from high school all the way through his NFL years, you'll see who's the best player on that football field, who's putting 110% on that football field. And they know that, and they know that. And it's a shame that people say that when they know what I did, because I was there with them. It, it clearly agitates you. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's it the burns only my point in the interview up. where I can tell. Like, it, it burns my inside up when when, when you work so hard for a brand and people try to make your brand go back down here because of the fact, again, I guess the fame that came with me winning the national championship, they thought I was big headed and I loved the fame, but uh, I'm over and over with it. And, you know, I feel like it's my loss and their loss because I could have been a, a, a definitely a, a, a really big help. Um, for the NFL, which I was doing, and as well as the young men and coming into the league now, I thought I can be a major um, mentor or someone for them, uh, for those young men. But uh, I want nothing to do with the NFL because they don't want nothing to do with me. I don't want nothing to do with them neither. Uh, I'm happy where I'm at right now. How much would you like to play in the NFL again? No, I'm pretty much over with that. You know, what I'm doing now. You, you're, you're, so your wife says if there's, if somebody called with a legitimate offer, she thinks you would do it. <laughs> um, Sean, your friend says, um, Vince isn't stupid enough to do it without a guaranteed <laughs> contract. Um, but both think that that fire's still inside of you, at least a, a little bit, uh, you know, you're in, well, I Good mean, shape, you still work out. You... I mean, you know, that's my craft. That's what I did all my life. So I know how to play that game. And again, um, you know, it has to be something smart, something guaranteed for two or three years. It just can't be you come to events, come try out. No, no, I'm not doing that because of the fact of what happened to me in the past. And, you know, some of these teams didn't even give me a courtesy of even talking to me, even to cut me. They brought the middleman in. You know, I came in talking to the head coach or everybody, but after that, I didn't see anybody. 
to even say, Vince, thank you for even coming, I didn't even get that. So how, how did it go down? It's just you got the middle assistant man or, uh, or a recruit, they call it a recruiter. They got these type of people coming to talk to you. And like, I thought I earned that much respect in NFL for a GM or a head coach to come tell me. So after that, I was kind of like, I just don't want to be a part of something like that because I know I earn that type of respect um, from you know any t organization in the NFL to at least let me know um, what I need to go work on and what I need to get better at. And most of the teams that I was with didn't even do that. <laughs> Two quotes I wanted to read to you that you've given before that I thought were interesting, and I'm just interested in you maybe providing a little more context behind them. Uh, one. A lot of problems stem from not wanting to be in the spotlight. And the second one was, everything that comes from being the best is overrated. Yes. They both are. That's definitely uh, me being who I am, Southern, just want to relax and just play football. But some people are like, well, you are the quarterback, so that comes <laughs> with being a quarterback, but me, I don't want it. I'm like, give it to the running back. He scores, give it to the receiver or the tight end. They score the defense, making sacks. I just want to be old regular guy in the backfield, sand hut, handing the ball off, making a good pass, and just, you know, you know, doing my part without the fame of it. You know, I don't, I don't really like the fame part of it because it get overrated and it brings a lot of problems and it brings too much attention. Um, it, it brings the wrong attention. It doesn't bring attention about what I'm doing in the community, uh, Vince graduating. It doesn't bring the good attention. It only brings in what somebody says, and it's not the truth of what's really being said. And if you really want the truth, I feel like you should ask that player or that person, um, you know, what's the truth? And don't nobody care about the truth no more to me. So that's why I like to kind of stay there. Everybody like, where you been? Where you at, V? Why are you not doing this? I'm like, because I choose not to. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I hate dealing with people that's negative. And it's, and me, I can't do nothing because if I do do something, then I'm gonna get sued or back on TV, blah, 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 blah. blah. Right. And I don't want to do that stuff no more. So I just like what I just said earlier, shut your mouth and just keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> I kind of I see both sides of it, though, too. I see w why the media is at fault, because the media takes a little piece of something and just runs with it without giving it context, and that's detrimental to whoever it is that made the comments. But then I also see the other side of it. If I'm the media, I'm probably trying to get access to the high-profile athlete, and the high-profile athlete who's getting all the attention doesn't want to talk because they're getting hit up by everybody, so you run with kind of... Well, I wouldn't say don't want to talk to them. It's when you, like you said, change change it up and put it in your terms, your words. And I'm speaking to you right directly right here, and you change the whole conversation up to what you want the conversation to be. And I can't stand that because of the fact, um, you know, people out there doing that stuff. And it's, it's very sad. Man, look. And you never know what's going on through that young man or that coach's mind. You never know. But I know if they're in the position that they're at playing football or coaching, uh, obviously they're doing something right. <laughs> so let's talk about that. Don't nobody want to talk about that. They want to talk about, oh, well, we're losing and, and this and that. Man, you don't know why we're losing. If you really want to look why we're losing, 
okay, we had two penalties on two touchdowns called back, or they would have won that game. If you want to see why we lost that game, because we missed the field goal. <laughs> That's why we lost the game. So actually, they would be, instead of two and four, they'd be four and two. Right. <laughs> but don't nobody want to talk about that. Don't nobody want to talk about, okay, these kids over here, even though they are losing, but they graduate. UT graduating of athletes right now is at the, the highest peak right now. Nobody talk about that. So to me, I'm going to be that spokesman for to talk about the good that people are doing in the world because everybody has problems and everybody's easy to go talk about the problem part of it, but don't nobody want to talk about the good part, uh, what that young man or that young lady is doing. So I'm going to be that guy. <laughs> what was it like filing for bankruptcy? It was embarrassing when you didn't know um, um, uh, what bankruptcy what bankruptcy was all about after you sit down with a bankruptcy lawyer and he goes in detail and explain um, about it's more so protection so people can't take things from you and take your money so I was like okay the only thing is it was going to be embarrassing about is me being who I am and how they gonna how the people going to um, receive it and most people don't receive it right because they most time they look at it another kind of way <laughs> right so uh, after I got over that smoke cloud clear I was just happy that you know um, I did that now and, and until waited till later and I hope um, I pray that some of my friends and peers and people I know um, I'll make sure that they taking care of every I hope m me was a great example for them to go pay attention so these guys wouldn't wait until they had to go through a situation and I know plenty of guys have have went through the situation that I went through and we all upset because of the fact people out there are just <laughs> this is ruthless man <laughs> Tell about the judgment that you won. Oh man, just to get a judgment against that guy to get some of my money back, because um, I had a judgment against me. <laughs> so it was a painful moment, because when you have a somebody coming and trying to take your Rose Bowl rings, your trophies, your cars, your house, and you never took a dime from the person, <laughs> like the money never came into my account that supposedly the loan that I was supposed to get never came to none of my accounts but you suing me, it was, it was painful, it was hurting. I was, I was pissed. <laughs> I was very pissed because um, somebody ruled a judgment against me that I had no clue about. So knowing that I have a judgment against somebody now, um, now I get to give him a taste of what happened to me uh, for harassing you, making sure that you pay me back the money that you took from me. And, and the team that you had around you when you, you know, this was going on was your uncle who helped raise you, uh, your agent, financial advisors? Well, I don't really know, you know, again, I don't really know what those guys was doing. I'm just, you know, the paperwork shows everything, so. What, what hurt the most? Well, it hurt because he was my uncle, for one. Uh, you know, I've been, he, he's my dad brother, so I definitely thought that he had my back a little bit more. Um, well, you know, I don't really fault him because some of the stuff wasn't his fault neither. They was doing stuff past him too. So um, as I talked to him and stuff, I mean, he was doing some things that was um, not cool, but at the same time, it, most of the big stuff that was going on, he had no clue about it. He was just now finding out himself about a lot of stuff that was going on. But you know, again, I don't really want to talk about all that mess. Yeah. I'm way past that and over that, and I'm happy. Uh, are there, outside of having bad people around you, are there decisions you made financially that looking back you would have done differently? 
No, I, I would always take care of my family. Yeah. <laughs> I still do it to this day right now. I still take care of my family right now. So a lot of people say you need to say no, but I'm not going to tell my mom no. I mean, if it's just she need a thousand dollars or something, I'm going to give that thousand dollars to my mom or my sister or my wife or my mom or her mom. That's just who I am. Uh, because I know I'm going to work very hard to go get that thousand, whatever I gave out. Right. And I'm going to put it right back into the to account because Did, that's this type of person I am. Didn't you say somewhere, though, that one of the toughest things to learn was saying no? Well, it was saying no to every month when it was back in the day when it was like that. That was the hard part. Um, so, you know, as now, it's just like, Everybody understands now that it's a budget going on. We have to live by this budget. Um, in order for us to live financially free, uh, we have to take care of our responsibilities of understanding I can't do it right now. I can, but I'm, I, I can't do it right now. What do you think you learned financially from having gone through all of this? Well, definitely don't sign a, a power attorney. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's two different ones, but they, you know, I, I you know, I want to go into that, but um, definitely not sign a power attorney and, um, you know, write, sign your own checks, stuff like that, uh, you know, and then get a second opinion about any information that's given from somebody you're working with, you know, get it back, check it over again, um, you know, make sure that stuff is right. Thank you very much. Oh, sure, no problem. Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash Graham Bensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.